Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Sunday, August the 27th, 2023. It is currently 3.41 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. All right, long gospel time, thesis number six. Let me read it to you one more time. Thesis number six. The word of God is not rightly divided when the law is not preached in its full sternness and the gospel not in its full sweetness. When on the contrary, gospel elements are mingled with the law and law elements with the gospel. We've been listening to Issues ETC work through this thesis. We've listened to pretty much everything well, they they pretty much covered everything that's in the book, God's Knowing God's Yes, The Proper Distinction Between Law and Gospel by C.F.W. Walther. Now they're, they're kind of going beyond what the book has to say. I think they're, they're referencing the lectures of C.F.W. Walther on the proper distinction between law and gospel. So it's a much more expanded version of God's No and God's Yes. So we'll see what else they have. Now, this is what, this is, remember, we are, Reviewing audio from Issues ETC, please subscribe to their podcast, Issues ETC, but it's a radio program. So they they have all of these commercial breaks, and here they're coming out of their last commercial break, and this is the last segment, meaning this last segment is probably maybe not even five minutes long. It's really, really quick. So I always hate these episodes. I mention it every time, but that's just, this is the way we're breaking the audio down. But hopefully these small sections make it easy for you to try to retain or remember or maybe have your memory refreshed on certain specific things in regards to these theses because we've covered all of these theses. Remember, we were all the way up to like thesis 11 or 12. So this is just review and refresh and and, and to try to just really reinforce these ideas. So by this point, you should be basically walking around as experts on the subject of the proper distinction between law and gospel. If you're not... Well, maybe by the time we're done, we will all be maybe not maybe not experts, but maybe, I don't know, pretty informed when it comes to the subject. I don't know. I don't know what we want to accomplish. We want to learn as much as we can. So are you ready? Let's go to Issues ETC. Again, subscribe to their podcast wherever you get their podcast. And uh, this is their final segment on thesis number six. It's only a couple of minutes long. Let's see what they have to say and how they wrap this thesis up. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Pastor Will Whedon is our guest. It's our series on the proper distinction between law and gospel. Walther picks up with Luther again, and he makes a comparison that Walther has already observed, and that is between the New Testament Pharisees and the Papists. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to actually back up just a hair and pick up Walther's own comment on it before we get to Luther's, which is pretty priceless, too. He says, Papists and Pharisees resemble each other as closely as two eggs. The Papists, when handing heretics over to the magistrates, declare, Ecclesia non citit sanguinum, that is, the church does not thirst for blood. True, many of our heretical enemies have been slain. However, it's not we who did that, but the magistrates. I've heard 
Roman Catholics use this argument to say that there really was no church inquisition after all because that was done, you know, under civil authority in, in Spain or whatnot. But in, that's ignoring that the church is the one that hands them over to be killed. Okay. Now, if you if you missed the last episode, you may not know what's going on here. He's dealing with the issue that that the commandments say thou shalt not kill. And some people want to interpret that and reduce it to just just you don't murder someone and anything else is permissible. But what he's trying to demonstrate is that the the correct understanding of the law, especially as articulated by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, is that it goes way beyond just physically killing someone. You can be guilty of this and never physically kill someone. But throughout the history of the Jews and the history of the church, there's always these attempts to say, well, see, I didn't kill them. I didn't kill them with my hands. I mean, this person did, or or this did, and even though I was involved in some way, even though I wanted them dead, but I found a way to ensure that my hands were clean of innocent blood. And it's like, no, you're still guilty before God. And so the Roman Catholics may say, wait, 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 wait. The civil authorities did it. Not admit, we didn't do it. Yeah, but who handed them over? Who found them guilty? Who wanted them punished? You did. So you wanted them dead because you knew by turning them over to the civil authorities exactly what was going to happen. So um, it's it's one of those ways of trying to justify yourself by gutting the true meaning of the law. And we talked about that in the last episode. Please go back and listen. I think it was part 22. I think this is part 23. I keep messing up the numbers. So I think they're all correct now. But go back and listen to the last one and you'll get a, a more, uh, a, a, a fuller understanding of that concept. All right. So let's continue. Thus the papists do want to wash their hands of the blood of the martyrs but they're not going to succeed. Someday they're going to have to appear before God, stained with the damning witness of this blood. The case of the Jews is similar. Had they known the spiritual meaning of the law, they would also have acknowledged, yes, we are the ones who killed the Christ. For it was we who cried, crucify, crucify him. So then, Luther now, he goes on, Behold here the pretty sanctity of Pharisees which can whitewash itself and retain the reputation of godliness, provided it does not employ its own hand for killing, though the heart is filled with wrath, hatred, and envy, and conceals malignant and murderous intrigues, while the mouth spouts forth curses and blasphemies of the same stripe as the sanctity of our papists, who have become past masters in those tricks." To guard their sanctity against censure and not to be bound by the word of Christ, they found a fine subterfuge in the 12 evangelical councils. Let me just stop for a second and get that. One of the ways you can mitigate the law is to say, well, Christ only intended some of the sayings that he gave to apply to those who were completely devoting their lives to him via being like monks or nuns or priests. They would throw their life entirely into the way of Christ, and they would be the ones who would keep these evangelical councils. And their keeping of them, by the way, would then constitute a treasury of merit from which the rest of us, poor schleps who can't keep the commandments the way we should, can then draw. And this is where the whole idea of these works of supererogation, works that are above and beyond the call of duty, if you will, are given. So 
they, they went to any number of things that Christ commanded and said, no, this actually is really not applicable to all Christians, to all people who want to be serious Christians. Remember, he'd started this whole thing out about, I'm going to be a genuine Christian. I'm going to follow what Christ himself has commanded. So he's going after this notion that they've created with these 12 evangelical councils. Now, just know this is kind of the Catholic system. Hey, they said some of this can't be applicable to everyone because no one can do this. But a monk or someone in a convent, uh, a nun or a monk, they can do that. And then they build up these kind of meritorious works that we can somehow then gain access to and we can get, we can, we can celebrate in the blessings of it. And it's, just, it's a whole convoluted system. And even though we may condemn that system, let's be very, very careful here. The evangelicals, we do. And non-Catholics, we have a similar system because so many times you'll read the Sermon on the Mount or something like, well, I mean, Jesus didn't really mean it that way. When he said, turn the other cheek, he didn't really literally mean, you know, don't resist evil. When he says, love your enemies, I mean, he just means, I mean, I didn't burn their house down. I mean, we always, well, I know he seemed to say this about marriage and divorce, but but I don't think he really meant it that way. We always start trying to lessen it and say it's not applicable, or we're making it too strict. Why? Because then we can then say that we're accomplishing it and that we fulfill it, and then we can all feel good about ourselves. But uh, the Catholic system had, well, they can't do it, but these other people can do it in some ways, and it builds up a treasury of merit that we can somehow access. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, I don't need someone else to keep the law for me because the treasury of merit supposedly is found in Jesus Christ, and he imputed his perfect obedience to me. Remember, they don't believe in a justification based off imputed righteousness, but infused righteousness. So the Catholic Church system is convoluted, but you know why it's convoluted? Because they themselves realize, well, wait a minute, nobody can keep these laws. Everyone deep down knows you can't keep the law. So we always find some way to gut the law or to remove the sternness of it so that we can somehow feel like we can accomplish it. And that is wrong. And I don't know, I'm, I'm going to jump ahead to just get Chemnitz's take on the on the twelve evangelical houses because he lists them out for you in his uh, chapters on theology, his Logi Theologici. He says first, voluntary poverty. The words of Christ: Sell that thou hast and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Are understood by the papist as merely being a good counsel. In their view, this counsel is followed by all who enter a monastery. Celibacy. This counsel, the papists extract from Matthew 19, verse 12, there are some eunuchs which are so born from their mother's womb and some eunuchs which are made eunuchs by men, and there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Behold, they say, our monks and nuns have adopted this good counsel. Or they put it this way, they lead a life of chastity. The third of these uh, 12 counsels, unconditional obedience. To the superior of an order. This good counsel, too, is supposedly followed by monks and nuns. Four, taking revenge. In other words, renouncing taking revenge. It seems almost beyond belief that anyone should arise in the church and declare the divine command not to take revenge is merely a good counsel, which some Christians are to do. That amounts to saying you might revenge yourself, but if you decline to do so, that's a splendid good work. Five, patiently suffering insult, six, giving alms, seven, refraining from swearing, eight, avoiding opportunities to commit sin. This is awful. It's not 
necessary than to avoid all opportunities for sinning. But if you do so, you've climbed higher up the rung of perfection. Nine, have a right intention in doing whatever you do. This would mean no matter what prompts you to do the good work, it is in every case some sort of a good work in the sight of God. But if you are guided by a right motive, you're an exceptionally saintly person. Verse 10, doing what Christ says in Matthew 23, they say and do not in Matthew 7, 5, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye. In other words, the self-reflection. And then 11, not being concerned about temporal affairs. That's just merely a good counsel, no matter that Jesus said to all of his disciples, take no thought for the morrow. And then 12, admonishing a brother. Imagine this is not to be regarded as a real duty, but as something which a Christian is free to do or not to do, depending on how serious they want to get with their faith. So with the introduction of these evangelical councils into the whole equation, Luther says, they claimed that not all that Christ taught was of the nature of a command and a necessary requisite for discipleship, but some of his teachings were meant as a good counsel, the following of which was left to anyone in its discretion. These counsels are to be adopted by those who wish to achieve some especial merit before others. For the average person, these counsels are superfluous. They could well do without them. When you ask them their reason for framing their counsels from the teaching of Christ and how they proved their case, they would say, the way that they're laid out, it would be an excessive burdening then to Christian law. In other words, it would make Christianity too onerous an affair if all the teachings of Christ were to actually be taken as commands. See what they do? There's just no way anyone can do this. We have to work out this system. Well, this is meant for them, and then they can build up a treasury of merit that you somehow can access by praying to the saints or whatever the case may be. And it's, 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 it's a whole convoluted system, but the point is they realize there's just no way you can do this. No reasonable person can be expected to do this. And that's the whole point of the law. You can't do it. You can't do it. But I don't care if it's Catholics. I don't care if it's evangelicals. I don't care who it is. We always come and try to somehow rework the law so that it's manageable, so that we can. Or we try to pretend that we can actually keep it when anyone paying attention, knowing that we cannot do this. And and we have to, we have to see that. And I don't know why. People cannot realize the law is not to be watered down so that we that we can do it. And we're not to pretend that we can. It's supposed to go. "Mm, I see it. I understand what it says. And I fall short of it. And I'm convicted by it. I'm broken. I'm humbled. And then I'm going to come to Christ who kept it for me. And Luther is shocked. He says, you know, this is what the theologians of Paris unblushingly publish in their treatise. They directed against me. He said, forsooth here, they have some smart reasoning, being kind to your neighbor and not forsaking him in distress as you would wish that people should treat you. That is to be regarded as an over great burden. And inasmuch as they deem it too onerous, they decree that it shall not be regarded as a command, but as a matter left to the opinion of such as would gladly do it. Does this make sense? I mean, this, this whole idea of these evangelical councils is really appalling. It mitigates the law at its core, basically saying, you ordinary Christians just don't need to worry about that. The people who really are intent on being, you know, super Christians, let them worry about it. Their merits can even apply to you. We'll even sell them to you. Christ says, if any man 
will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whoever shall compel thee to go with him one mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh of thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not away. The papists construe these words to mean thus. True, Christ did say that, but his words are merely evangelical counsels. If the question is how to get to heaven, you have to keep the law. But if your object is to climb to a high place in heaven, then you need to worry about carrying out these evangelical counsels. I mean, isn't that truly atrocious? That's the kind of thing that they were fighting at the time of the Reformation. I think it still remains a teaching of Roman Church. I think it's in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, still the distinction between the evangelical councils and the law, which just blows me away. Walter, uh... and I know it blows you away, but the same thing happens in the evangelical world. So that's what drives me crazy. Everybody will look to Catholicism and say, I can't believe they do this. And why would they take this and distinguish it from the law and say, well, you can't keep this. But we, the, the, the non-Catholic church has been playing the same kind of game where we, when Jesus says, be ye perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Well, I mean, you know, it's not that we can be perfect. It just means that we need to, to try. When God says, be ye holy as I'm holy. Well, I mean, as long as we're moving in that direction, where in first John, it says, if you don't do this, you're not a child of God. Well, it's not that you do it perfectly. As long as that you're trying, you're doing the same thing. No, the law demands perfection. It demands that you be perfect. It demands that you be perfect. It demands that you be holy. It demands that you love perfectly. It demands that you do these things perfectly. So how do you interpret that? Not by gutting it or watering it down by saying, I can't. But Christ did. And in Christ, I do all of these things. Therefore, I'm a child of God. Because in Christ, they're all done for me. That's the only way to interpret it anywhere close. Or you do this weird thing that Roman Catholics do. So if you want to read more about the evangelical councils, I have uh, there's an Wikipedia has an article on in Christianity, the three evangelical councils or councils of perfection are chastity, poverty, or perfect charity and obedience as stated by Jesus and the canonical gospels. They are councils for those who desire to become perfect. The Catholic Church interprets this to mean that they are not binding upon all and hence not necessary conditions to attain eternal life, but they are acts of, of exceeding the minimum stipulated in the biblical commandments. These, these go above and beyond, all right? Catholics who have made a public profession to order their lives by the evangelical councils and confirm this by public vows before their competent church authority, the act of religious commitment known as profession are recognized as members of the consecrated life. So, hey, there's these laws in scripture, but they're not really laws. These are for the people who are going to be consecrated. This is going to be for the nun or the monk or the priest. All right. Now, guess what? Many who, well, they, they never fulfill these anyway, but okay, that's besides the point. But um, you can you can read about it. Um, I, I'll, I'll save this article. I will save this article. I'm sorry. I'm not talking directly into the microphone. Um, I will save this article. And um, if you would like it, I can send it to you. Uh, evangelical councils. Uh, it's not to be, it's not to be confused with an evangelical council. 
right? There's the evangelical council, right? Like the seven ecumenical councils. The evangelical councils are different than those. There's a separation. So if we, so sometimes you hear someone talking about the evangelical councils, you may be talking about the council of Nicaea. You, you get the idea, right? Um, but the evangelical councils, they're spelled completely different. For example, councils, a council is C-O-U-N-C-I-L, right? This is C-O-U-N-S-E-L-S, C-O-U-N-S-E-L-S. So if, if for some of you, if you're not Roman Catholic or studied Roman Catholic theology, you probably have no clue how this works. And it's, and then you got the treasury of merit. You're like, what in the world is that? There's a lot there that we could really dive into some serious Catholic theology. But just understand, this is basically them looking, going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. The average Christian cannot fulfill these commands. This is too much. It's too, but so, but then a special group of people, if they want to be perfect, this goes beyond what you need for eternal life. This goes beyond it. You, you're going to, you're going to try to strive for super sainthood. Well, then you submit to these evangelical councils and you dedicate your life to that. And then they can build up a treasury of merit, which then you can possibly access. And it gets into a whole host of other issues. But the main thing is they separate them. Well, in the non-Catholic world, we don't separate them necessarily that way. But what we do is say, well, it didn't really mean that. And we try to water them down and we try to change them. Or we seem to act like just trying is good enough. No, the law is meant to condemn. We can never fully accomplish it. Kind of wind things up for the 10th evening lecture with a little stab at the Jesuits, how they kind of volunteer to be the super Christians so that the other Christians can be relieved of an overwhelming moral burden. Yeah. <laughs> Remember, the Jesuits were formed to be like the counter-reformation takedown of Lutheran theology, right? So, I mean— Shock troops of the past. Yeah, exactly. So, they— it, it, Walter says, the Jesuits came forward with the proclamation, heretofore the poor Christians have been unduly oppressed with moral precepts. Hence we, the Jesuits, have formed a society for relieving Christians of the most grievous moral precepts, and they actually put their plan in operation with this happy result that according to their ethical standards, the most infamous scoundrel can still be a good Christian. Their moral code is the reverse of the Decalogue. A person may commit the most abominable of a horrible abominations, provided he does so with a good intention. He may poison his father if he has the good intention of becoming his heir. However, this entire ethical system of the papist and Jesuits has been overthrown by the words of Christ. Whoever will say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. This means that anyone who fails to fulfill the law in its spiritual sense deserves to perish. There it is right there. About 30 seconds to give us a little preview of what we will be looking at next time. Well, next time we move into thesis number seven, in which he wants to talk for the first time about how you're going to organize your sermon in such a way as to honor the distinction between law and gospel. And he's going to give a pile of very concrete examples of what you don't want to do. You don't want to get the cart before the horse. You got to get the horse before the cart. And he will show how to do that in this next thesis. Pastor Will Whedon is assistant pastor. 
There you go. Now, that gets into some serious Catholic theology. What I want you to take from it is whether it's Catholicism, whether it's Greek Orthodoxy, whether it's Judaism, whether it's any form of Christianity, everyone who's confronted with the law of God, we immediately start trying to figure out what to do with it, right? Well, can we do it? No, if you get saved, now you can do it. Well, I mean, you don't have to do it perfectly. Oh, wait, wait. Well, no, well, no not, not, not everyone can do this. Okay, we'll have a special group of people who will do it. Everyone tries to come up with a solution because when man is confronted with God's law, we, you know what we're unable basically to ever bring ourselves to? I cannot do it. I will never be able to do it. And it was never designed for me to do it. It was designed to show me my inability and how sinful I am. And so all I can do is rely fully on someone who could do it. And that was Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, who came to this earth without sin and kept the law of God perfectly, paid for my failure to keep it at all. And then by faith, his obedience is imputed to my account. That goes against everything we feel inside. And then we, and we, and many will give lip service to that and say, amen. And immediately say, but, 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 but you have to do this, 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 and this, and this, where they will then create a system saying that this is what proves you're saved, but, but you don't have to do it perfectly. So then once again, your imperfection somehow proves your salvation because you don't perfectly keep God's law. Well, that would prove you lack salvation. Oh, wait, no. My salvation is not proved by what I do or don't do. It's proved by what Christ did. And the evangelical church is still confused about the proper distinction between law and gospel. Now, you can email me at newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. All right. In less than two hours, I'll be standing behind the pulpit at Victory Baptist Church. We'll continue our work on Jeremiah. Then I will come home, give it a maybe an hour, and then we'll start more work on the book of Jeremiah. And then we begin our real in earnest, a marathon on the book of Jeremiah to see if we can get as close to finishing, as close to finishing before the month of August runs out. It's going to be a race to the finish. So join us for some marathon broadcasting and hopefully we will uh, benefit you greatly there. And then when, right when we, so they, as we get close to the end of this week, we'll come back to law and gospel. We still got to work on the doctrine of sanctification. And then we're going to begin a series on dispensationalism. Oh, and then we're going to also begin hopefully a series on basic theology. And then we also want to look at 30 Old Testament passages with deeper meaning. Oh, we got, oh, we got a million other things that we want to do. So, uh I don't know. Just just tune in and see what's coming next. All right. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great Sunday afternoon. We'll be back on the air at around 6 p.m. Central Time. God bless.